1: that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
0: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
1: Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do.
0: Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. For seldom is it that Artemis goes down to the town.
1: I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. And once again... This is not the episode I plan to write. Shocker. I
0: know. I guess we'll get to Atalanta someday. I guess we'll go on hiatus
1: eventually. (laughs) We'll maybe get a break. My research has been so thorough that I have been not allowing us to have any breaks, which is not good. I need a
0: break. We tried to tamp down the gender rebels of Greek mythology series because we just didn't have room and now it's exploding again. Can we calm it down?
1: Here's the thing. As we mentioned last week, the finale of our season was supposed to be Atalanta, and while that's still the plan, really, a certain goddess refused to let us end the series without telling her story. And believe me when I say this, no one was more surprised than me to find out that I would be writing an episode about Artemis. I am staying at my brother's house in the States, and I have two lovely dogs who just need to be near me all the time. So, if you hear any whining or little snores, it's the dogs, and I promise we'll put some pictures of them up on the Instagram and social so you can see them.
0: What's going on is Jen is recording this episode from under a pile of dogs. I am!
1: Oh, it's amazing.
0: It is kind of adorable, but they are kind of large dogs, so.
1: They are. They're definitely on the large side, and. They also think that they're lap dogs, like my dog back home, and they are not. I'm recording in a pod closet, and it's great, but also dogs. And I thought we'd said all there was to say about Artemis in our earlier episodes. We talked about her a lot in this series. Her lovers, her exploits, her band of nymphs that she was definitely sleeping with. But as I dug deeper into the story of Atalanta and the history of women like Atalanta, I kept coming up with the same stumbling block. The Artemis of it all. Because you can't talk about Atalanta without understanding Artemis. Jenny, what do you think about when you think about Artemis? What comes to mind? Nympharums. Okay, what else comes to mind besides the nymph harems?
0: It's a little bit of a a disingenuous answer because the nymph harems is something that we discovered in the course of doing our own work on Artemis, and it is not necessarily straight up canon as we know it in the classical Greek telling, although it may in fact be OG canon, and we are going to get to that. So I would say my typical off-the-cuff response prior to having done this arc would be, well, she's, she's a huntress, she has a... Bow and arrow, she's associated with the moon, and she is absolutely a virgin. She does not bone. That's like her major personality trait. No boning,
1: none. Yeah, I mean, while all that is very, very true, Artemis was so much more, and her roots were far more ancient than I ever imagined. Artemis was actually the second most worshiped god after Zeus, according to the research. And hopefully, by the end of this episode, you'll understand why that's the case. Her temples and shrines were actually everywhere, from Ephesus to the Parthenon to the wilds of the mountains of Arcadia and the Peloponnese. The worship of Artemis was widespread, and it was essential to daily life. Because, believe it or not, Artemis was a huge part of every person's life, from birth to death in ancient Greece.
0: So join us as we go into a deep dive of who Artemis was, how she was worshipped, and how her worship changed over the centuries as her cult moved across the Mediterranean, and finally, how she evolved into a goddess who fit into the classical Athenian idea of what an eternal maiden, quote-unquote, should look like.
1: So, the story of Artemis' birth is kind of an important one. We're not going to go too deep into a mythology rabbit hole in this episode, and I know you're all shocked. I can't believe I'm saying this either. Because what this episode is really about is how Artemis was worshipped and how that worship shows us a goddess who was a gender rebel. But to get to that worship, we have to go back to the beginning, to the story of Artemis' birth.
0: Zeus, in his role of serial philanderer and just guy who is the worst.
1: Yeah, that's his official title.
0: Fuck daddy Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> fell in lust with two sisters, Asteria and Leto. So it's just a little bit incestuous.
1: I mean, I guess there weren't a lot of people around and you were probably distantly related to all of them at this point in time. Isn't Hera just straight up Zeus's sister? Mm -hmm. Look, he doesn't keep it in his pants, and he definitely keeps it in the family.
0: Oh, he does. So Asteria and Leto were both titans, titanesses. And after the Titanomachy, which is the war between the titans and the Olympians, They were both living their best lives on Olympus, doing whatever the fuck they wanted, until they both caught Zeus's eye, of course. Asteria was the goddess of falling stars, and she was absolutely not here for any of Zeus's serial fuck-daddy bullshit. She wanted no part of his amorous affections, barf. Known sex-pest Zeus hounded her across the skies until one day she'd had enough. She turned into a quail and fell into the sea. She then morphed herself into the island of Delos. That is the length she had to go to to keep out of Zeus's clutches. He just would not stop. Sometimes Delos is referred to as a floating island, and that's because of its association with Asteria. No idea how what Asteria has to do with floating islands versus just normal islands. I don't know. That's, that's the story. Leto, on the other hand, was here for Zeus's bullshit. She was actually into this. She had a torrid affair with a king of the gods and became pregnant with twins. And Hera, Zeus's wife, lost her shit, predictably. She refused, refused to allow Leto to give birth on land or sea. She literally chased Leto all around the world, forcing the poor woman, who was in the pangs of labor at this point, not to stop running until she reached the island of Delos. Delos was, after all, the island that her sister had turned into, and that's where Leto took refuge. She was finally able to give birth to twins, who turned out to be Apollo and Artemis. Here's what Pindar tells us in his processional song on Delos, which is a Greek lyric hymn, dating from around the 5th century B.C. Quote, Hail, O heaven-built isle, most lovely scion of the children of bright-haired Leto, that would be Apollo and Artemis, O daughter of the sea, thou unmoved marvel of the spacious earth, by mortal men called Delos, but by the blessed gods of Olympus, known as the far-seen star, Astra, of the dark blue sea. For aforetime that isle was tossed on the waves by all manner of whirling winds, but when Leto, the daughter of Koios, in the frenzy of her imminent pangs of travail, set foot on her. Then it was that four lofty pillars rose from the roots of the earth, and on their capitals held up the rock with their adamantine bases. There it was that she gave birth to and beheld her blessed offspring, Apollo and Artemis.
1: Artemis was born first, and as soon as Artemis was born, she was essentially pressed into service, because why wouldn't she be she's a girl? The tiny baby Artemis somehow goes over to her mother and helps her to give birth to her twin brother Apollo. And here's what Callimachus, who was a Greek poet around the third century BC, tells us in his hymn to Artemis, even in the hour when I was born, the fates ordained that I should be their helper of women in childbirth for as much as my mother suffered no pain either when she gave me birth or when she carried me in her womb, but without travail put me from her body.
0: So Artemis starts her life off as a protector of women and a goddess of childbirth. This is just a really wild story. She's an infant, newborn infant, helping her mom through childbirth. It's just a weird picture.
1: (laughs) It really is, like a teeny tiny newborn. Like, I don't even know how that works. I don't.
0: So Artemis starts off her life as a protector of women and a goddess of childbirth, basically as, as a newborn infant helping her mom give birth to her twin brother, which is a very bizarre image, in my opinion. On day two, Artemis and her brother are given bows and arrows by Hephaestus, and they both become expert archers in, like, two seconds. It's, it's
1: like, a little bit like Cuchul in dog years, but even more extreme. You have the same thing with Hermes, too. Like, Hermes does some wild stuff when he's, like, a teeny-tiny baby. Can you imagine
0: teeny-tiny baby Artemis and teeny-tiny baby Apollo both shooting arrows? It's just nuts! In some stories, it's at this time that Artemis pieces out for a bit to hunt in the wilds and mountains of mainland Greece as, as a two-day-old baby. Although, okay, sometimes Artemis gets her fame bow and arrow at age three. That doesn't make it less weird. Yeah, that's not
1: quite as fun as like a two-day-old baby, so I just kept that in.
0: We'll <laughs> go with it. She's a two-day-old baby who helped her mother through childbirth and now, now is an expert baby archer.
1: And I wanted to include both of these stories because it shows the duality of Artemis' nature. Artemis is a goddess of both childbirth and a protector of women, but she's also wild and a hunter. And these contradictions are intrinsic to her divinity and her worship. She steps out of the womb and both confirms the traditional gender roles of classical Athenians, i.e. helps her mother give birth and protects her, and she defies them by picking up a bow and arrow and deciding to peace out to the wilderness to hunt.
0: There's a fascinating moment between Artemis and her father Zeus, where Artemis basically just asks her dad to bestow powers on her. Callimachus tells us in his uh, Hymn 3 to Artemis, quote... Of Artemis we hymn, no light thing is it for singers to forget her, whose study is the bow and the shooting of hares, and the spacious dance and sport upon the mountains, beginning with the time when sitting on her father's knees, still a little maid, she spake these words to her s-. She is a very, very precocious child. She spake these words to her sire. Quote, within the quote, Give me to keep my maidenhood father forever, and give me to be of many names, that Phoebus Apollo may not vie with me and give me arrows and a bow. Stay, father, I ask thee not for quiver or for mighty bow, but for me the Cyclopes will straightway fashion arrows and fashion for me a well-bent bow. But give me phaesphoria, bringer of light, and give me to gird me in a tunic with embroidered border reaching to the knee, that I may slay wild beasts, and give me sixty daughters of Okeanos for my choir, all nine years old, all maidens yet ungirdled, and give me for handmaidens twenty nymphi amnisities of the Amnios river in Crete, who shall tend well my buskins. This is just, it's just one of those weird 18th century free open source translations, just deal with it. And when I shoot no more at lynx or stag, shall tend my swift hounds. And give to me all mountains, and for city assign me any, even whatsoever thou wilt. For seldom is it that Artemis goes down to the town. On the mountains will I dwell, and the cities of men I will visit, only when women vexed by the sharp pang of childbirth call me to their aid. Even in the hour when I was born, the fates ordained that I should be their helper. For as much as my mother suffered no pain either when she gave me birth or when she carried me within her womb, but without travail put me from her body. So spake the child and would have touched her father's beard.
1: (laughs) I just have to stop for a minute. Like, it's the most precocious, wild thing. It's so strange and like, she's just like, demanding, like, I want all these nymphs. I want all these things. I want to be a, not in competition with my brother, but kind of better than him.
0: And <laughs> I want a cool outfit, and I want to slay wild beasts and give me 60 daughters of Okeanos for my choir. I think, I think it's
1: Okeanos, but it's Oceanos would be how we'd say it in English, but yeah.
0: Oh, that makes more sense. Okay, so this, this is when she gets her nymph harem.
1: Yes, she's asking as a small child for a harem of nymphs. Like, are you telling me Artemis doesn't know exactly what she wants? She knows what she wants.
0: She's also, she's sitting on Zeus's lap and like touching his beard as she says it. So it's a little bit like a Santa Claus image. I'm not saying that that is a connection to that because I the whole Santa Claus thing is much newer and has its roots in Germanic lore and possibly some Celtic lore. But, you know, there's so much cultural exchange back then.
1: I think this is, this is slightly more obscure.
0: Anyway, so spake the child and would have touched her father's beard, but many a hand did she reach forth to in vain that she might touch it in supplication. And her father smiled and bowed assent. And as he caressed her, he said, quote within the quote, when goddesses bear me children like this, little need I heed the wrath of jealous Hera. He always has to take it gross. Always.
1: He does. He always has to like dig it again at Hera. So
0: I don't, I don't need Hera. I just like, I can just breed The good children on other women.
1: Well, I think it's not that I don't need Hera. I think it's like, I don't need to worry about how angry she is, because, like, look at this cool kid I made with another goddess. Like, she's gonna see how cool this kid is. It's a lot of pressure. Anyway, Zeus goes on, Take, child,
0: all that thou askest heartily. Yea, and other things therewith yet greater will thy father give thee. Three times ten cities and towers more than one will I vouchsafe thee. Three times ten cities that shall not know to glorify any other god, but to glorify the only and be called of Artemis, and thou shalt be watcher over streets and harbors. So he spake and bent his head
1: to confirm his words. So much of Artemis's qualities are usually looked at in comparison to her brother Apollo. Apollo and Artemis became the god of the sun and the goddess of the moon, or sort of associated with that in the Greek pantheon. There were other gods of sun and moon, but sometimes, for shorthand, they attribute that to Artemis and Apollo. It's not exactly right. Apollo takes his place as the god of music, archery, and healing. Artemis becomes a goddess of the shadows. She's the goddess of the wild places, of the hunt, of animals, particularly bears, wolves, boars, and stags and deer. She's the goddess of women and children and the transition from childhood to adulthood. She's also the goddess of a good death people prayed for Artemis's arrows to bring on a good and swift death. But looking at Artemis only in comparison to her brother leaves out a large part of her story and essentially falls into the classical Athenian trap. Because Artemis's roots go back further and often do not mention her brother at all. In her book,
0: She Who Hunts, Artemis, the Goddess Who Changed the World, Carla Ionescu looks at Artemis's origins. Ionescu points out that Artemis's origins come from Egypt. As Artemis Agrotera, the huntress, the goddess is often described in association with the wilderness, with nature, but particularly with her bow and arrow. Homer often identifies her as the goddess who loves archery and the slaying of beasts. Unlike her Ephesian counterpart, who stands between two lions, the Greek Artemis is often painted and or sculpted wearing a quiver of arrows and attended by a stag or several dogs. The mountains, rivers, and groves are her sanctuary, and she can be both unforgiving and merciful— Her lack of a male companion and her violently guarded chastity make her the prime incarnation of traditions that trace her roots to pre-dynastic Egypt. Artemis Agrotera seems to have evolved from two Egyptian deities. Neith, mistress of the bow and ruler of the arrows, a goddess whose primordial existence is embedded in Egyptian thought, and Bastet, also known as Bast, Pasht, and Bubastis, the cat goddess who delights in dancing and music and is representative of the moon, marriage, and motherhood.
1: These ancient roots tell a story of an Artemis whose incarnation was mixed with the cultural exchange across the Mediterranean and Northern Africa. The combination of these two goddesses into one goddess in in Greece, Artemis, shows how the cultural exchange worked across this area. Artemis became a goddess who was all about hunting and the wilderness, but also a goddess of motherhood, i.e. pregnancy and giving birth, and the moon. Many of Artemis' seemingly contradictory qualities make sense because you can see how they evolved from two goddesses into one. One goddess whose purview covered so many different things.
0: In fact, the early worship of Artemis looked a lot like the worship of Bastet. Ionescu explains, quote, The women engage in music, song, and dance, and they drink wine on their way to the temple, where great sacrifices were made in Artemis' honor. This accords well with Egyptian sources, which prescribe that Leonine goddesses are to be appeased with feasts and drunkenness. The worship of Artemis at times includes festivals of wild and drunken behavior. She's often the divine counterpart of Dionysus and described as the frenzy-loving goddess. Her love of dancing, racing, and competition, as well as the wildness and freedom of the natural realm, make her a fitting vessel
1: for the Egyptian Bastet. So Jenny, when I read this passage, I was, I was just absolutely stunned. I was gobsmacked. I was like, what did I just read? Because I never heard of Artemis being worshipped this way. Yeah, like a Dionysus counterpart. That's really new. It's super new to me. As a lay person, this is not how I thought Artemis was worshipped. Again, I'd always had the preconceived Theenian notion that Artemis was a chase goddess who lived in the woods with her nymphs. And I don't know, I kind of thought she was super elusive. I knew you didn't want to piss her off because her wrath was pretty
0: extreme. In her mythology, you know, the, the stories about her involve somebody capturing a glimpse of her naked and Artemis turning them into a wild deer so they can get eaten by their own dogs and stuff. Like, she really does not like to be spied upon bathing with her nymphs.
1: She doesn't like to be spied upon. She doesn't like to be cheated on by her lovers. Poor Callisto. She also doesn't like it when you offend her mom. Because there's a whole myth, the myth of Niobe, where her and Apollo just kill all of Niobe's kids. It's awful. She doesn't like it. Don't don't say mean things about her mom. So, you know, I didn't really give much thought to how Artemis was worshipped. But Ionesco explains that the worship of Artemis was pretty fucking epic. It was essentially a drunken frenzy, complete with racing and dancing, and it was all out in the woods. Could the original worship of Artemis have been a liberating affair for both men and women? Did the worship of Artemis free both genders to participate in a primal and orgiastic experience that dated back to ancient Egypt? Maybe. Maybe. I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Artemis's evolution might have begun in ancient Egypt, but it didn't end there. Artemis is also linked to an ancient Minoan goddess known as the Mistress of Animals. The Mistress of Animals resembles some aspects of Artemis, but she's a much older deity whose worship spread across the mountains and forests of Greece. As Ionescu explains, quote, Both the divine nature and function of the Mistress of Animals shows that Artemis is of Minoan origin. Nilsson notes that, quote, within the quote, Artemis is not the goddess of classical mythology, the sister of Apollo, but a ruder and more primitive type of deity, which was widespread especially in the Peloponnesus and among the Dorian peoples. She is in fact the most popular goddess of Greece, at least in the cult of the simple rustic people. This Artemis is the goddess of wild nature who is not touched or altered by the hands of men. She roams the mountains and forests, and in the shadowy groves and wet meadows she hunts and dances together with her nymphs, who have faith in her as their fearless protector. In fact, dances are very common in her cult. These dances are of an orgiastic and at times indecent character, and the dancers are often depicted wearing masks. Such scenes do not fit in with the Greek tradition of Artemis as a virgin goddess. In tandem with this, the Minoan goddess is never shown inside a shrine. She manifests herself within a natural environment seated under a tree or on a rock. And I should
1: stop here for a minute because I always shout out the books that were super useful and vital in writing an episode. And for this episode, it was She Who Hunts Artemis, The Goddess Who Changed the World by Carla Ionescu. It is fantastic. We, we quote from it and reference it a lot. If you want to know more about Artemis, this is your primer. Anyway! So let's break this down. Artemis' Minoan roots, much like her Egyptian ones, show her to be a goddess who is all about those orgies. She's not necessarily a chaste virgin. Her worship isn't about chastity or virginity. Instead, it's a wild primal frenzy about the dance between life and death all out in the woods. As a goddess of the wild and the hunt, she is primal. She is a goddess who delights in the dance of life and death, the hunt the mating. All aspects of the wild are sacred to Artemis. And her worship shows us this.
0: Also, notice how this Artemis, this version, is framed as a goddess of wild nature who is not touched or altered by the hands of men, which makes sense because she's the goddess of wilderness which is also not touched or altered by the hands of men, but her celebrations are described as orgiastic and indecent. Were these all women orgies? Do we know that? It sounds like it to me. (laughs)
1: It kind of sounds like it to me, but I, I don't know. I mean, these are mystery cults, but I think with those, what is it, like 50 nymphs of one and 20 nymphs of another, what's that, like 70 nymphs? Like,
0: with 60 nymphs plus 20 nymphs, so 80 nymphs. 80 nymphs, yeah. We're now just doing nymph math. <laughs> <laughs> and we do talk about that when we talk about Artemis's relationship with Callisto in the queer women episode, so there's an implication of that. Not saying it's actually what happened, but it's, it's quite possible. And we've seen in other places where the classical Greeks sanded down and, and eliminated and erased any thought of sex for women that is not channeled toward home and hearth and family, and that absolutely includes queer sex between women.
1: I agree, Lena. That is shitty.
0: I really agree with Lena on this one. It's, it's real crap. You want to translate from the
1: wild for me? <laughs> So, Jenny, how do you get from these primal and often hedonistic portrayals of Artemis' worship to the goddess we know of in classical Athens? Well, in order to understand that, we have to look at how the worship of Artemis changed.
0: As the cult of Artemis swept across Greece, the way she was worshipped and the things she stood for changed. The wildness of the orgiastic dancing and nymph companions was sanded down. Yes, Artemis was still worshipped this way in the wilds of woods and fields, but the addition of her brother, the god of music, with his revelry became associated with her worship. The twins were worshipped together, wild Artemis becoming the chaste leader of Apollo's dancing nymphs. The orgiastic worship of a wilderness goddess changed. Instead, Artemis became an eternally young maiden who was content to lead dances at her brother's side, a deity who was happy to exist in the shadow of the sun's light. But it wasn't always this way. Ionescu explains how another epithet for Artemis tells us a lot about her worship and her origins. Apocamni, the strangled goddess, is another surname of Artemis. Tradition claims that in the neighborhood of the town of Kaphale in Arcadia, in a place called Candilia, there was a sacred grove of Artemis Candiliatis. Some children had playfully tied a rope around the neck of her statue and claimed she was strangled. As a result, the children were stoned to death by the villagers. Good Lord. Sometime later, the women of Caffiae were struck with a disease, and all of their children were stillborn. The villagers saw this as a sign of the wrath of Artemis for stoning the children, and the oracle ordered that the children be buried properly and that annual sacrifices be made to them since they were wrongly killed. From then on, Artemis was called Ampacamene or strangled. This legend embodies the role of the goddess in children's lives. In her position as Chorotrophos, meaning bringing up boys or rearing boys, she protects their upbringing and leads them to adulthood, receiving dedications of children's toys and garments. Let's, let's break this down. Artemis is a goddess of transitions. She's a goddess who protects children, both boys and girls, as they transition from children to adulthood, and she punishes those who harm children severely. The interesting thing here is that while Artemis has a role as a goddess of children and their protection, her actions are not motherly. She might have roots in ancient mothering goddesses, but the way she interacts with the world here is very much wild and primal. I definitely noticed that. Like, she's not, she's a protector of children, but she's not a maternal goddess. You know, like, she doesn't have that nurturing quality.
1: No, she doesn't. And I find that really fascinating. And I think some of that... We're going to unpack a little bit when we talk about what the idea of, strang- of that strangulation means, because there's some interesting stuff about why that might be the case, that she's not maternal.
0: So later on in her book, Ionescu explains that Artemis Ampunkamini, Artemis the Strangled, has another meaning. The ropes that bind or strangle Artemis represent a goddess who does not bleed. Strangulation is, you know, at least, I don't actually know if this is medically true, but theoretically, it's, it's a kind of death where you don't bleed, like being cut with a knife or something.
1: I think according to the ancient Greeks, this was how they saw strangulation, right? They didn't really know if that is true or about internal bleeding or anything else. They just knew, like, looking at someone who has killed themselves, it's not the same as someone who has been stabbed.
0: The ropes that bind or strangle Artemis represent a goddess who does not bleed. She's a prepubescent girl or, quote-unquote, maiden, a girl who has not yet gone through puberty. However, there are depictions of Artemis without the ropes, and that is meant to express the transition of a girl going through puberty, a girl who now bleeds, who is able to take her place as a woman. According to the Pseudas, it's a Byzantine Greek lexicon from the 10th century AD, quote, Lysosonos goon or girdle loosening woman, she who has drawn near to a man. This is a definition of, of this term, girdle loosening woman. She who is drawn near to a man. For virgins about to have sex, dedicated their virginal lingerie to Artemis. This is a much later source, but evidence for this goes back to the beginning of Artemis's worship. And there were, you know, when we were reading those uh, older hymns and quotes, there is a lot of talk about girdles. The girdles of the nymphs have not yet been loosened. And that's a reference to their virginity, I think.
1: That is a reference to it.
0: Yeah. Women who gave birth also dedicated their girdles to Artemis as a thank you for the safe delivery of their children. This giving up of the girdle was a way of marking a transition in a woman's life from childhood to adulthood, from maiden to mother. Ironically, Artemis is an eternal maiden who will never bear children. She's a bit of a Peter Pan figure who never grows old. And that's true. Like, that's definitely like a, an image I had of, of Artemis as this female Peter Pan character living in the woods.
1: She never gets old. She's never going to have children. I've not seen any myths or stories where she. Reproduces in any way asexually, makes something out of clay and brings it to life, like that is not her power.
0: Yeah, but she's far from a cold and remote goddess who only cares for hunting and being in the solitude of the wild.
1: I mean, the rope thing was so interesting to me. It was one of those things where, like, when you think about it, it makes total sense. Like, as a kid, you don't have the ability to have children, and then when you get rid of your girdle, when you give it to Artemis, you are able to have children. But Artemis never gives up that child's girdle, you know? She's always wearing the same outfit. She never, like, transitions into any of the other traditional gender roles. Much like Athena and Hestia. Like, they also do not bear children. So, to get back to our actual research here, Ionescu also explains that strangulation had a darker meaning in ancient Greece. The section that I'm going to read talks about suicide, so just be aware. Quote, This traces Artemis' roots back to the Minoan period, before Artemis was attached to her name. King argues that strangulation for the Greeks meant giving no blood. In the field of sacrifice, the shedding of blood issues a communication between men and the gods. And she's taking this from Herodotus' histories. However, as a form of human death, strangulation or hanging evoked horror. As a form of suicide, strangulation, And to give no blood in the face of violence, such as rape or unwanted defloweration, was traditionally appropriate. As eternal Parthenos, maiden, Artemis does not shed her blood in the hunt, in sex, or in childbirth. Fundamentally, the duality of Artemis strangled is primarily evident in the fact that she is a goddess who does not bleed, but who makes others bleed. Okay, so Jenny, this duality is important. This idea of death by strangulation particularly as a death for women who have been victims of sexual trauma is rife throughout mythology and greek tragedy strangling here is a form of communication it is a bloodless death and some women who died this way were leaving a message about what happened to them which i never really thought about until i read this passage but yeah yeah that's
0: fascinating and very dark yeah
1: yeah it's really fascinating and you see this pattern repeated throughout the mythology and you also see it in the history too Uh, And also, Death by Strangulation, or Suicide by Strangulation, is about potentially invoking Artemis, the protector of women and huntress, to, quote, make others bleed, i.e. make their attackers bleed through divine punishment. And I found that really, really fascinating. This further cements Artemis' role as a divine protector of women and as a goddess who meted out justice for wronged women and children.
0: Ionescu continues to trace the evolution of Artemis through her worship in Greece. Quote, "'Thus, Artemis Ampankamene is another example of how the goddess encompasses all aspects of life, despite their seemingly opposite elements. By clinging to her ancient roots, she maintains the wilderness, the violence, and the, and the freedom of being a nature goddess. At the same time, in wearing the mantle of her responsibility in Greek ritual, she exhibits the qualities of nurse, savior, and mother.' These attributes can be clearly seen as she is revered both as a protector and a terrifying enforcer. Artemis is the embodiment of opposites, duality, and the paradox of protection and punishment. Like many of her predecessors, for whom she inherits all responsibilities, she's a goddess of totality. As the goddess in charge of the sum of all aspects of Greek life, it is only logical that Artemis not only preside over rituals that involve healing, birth, marriage, and other life-giving rituals, but that she also oversees rites that involve aspects of war, sacrifice, and blood. This supports the argument that Artemis is a goddess of transitions and life passages, playing a fundamental role in the community of her followers at all stages of their lives. So, the worship of Artemis encompassed all aspects of people's daily lives, because she was a goddess of major life transitions. She was a goddess of immense power and importance to both men and women, and she was both as feared as she was loved. Because Artemis was wild— She retained her wild roots, and the worship of her reflected this.
1: And I wanted to stop here and look at two particular traditions that reflect this. The first has to do with Artemis of Braron, and Ionesco tells us about this. Quote, Artemis of Braron, also known as the Taurian Artemis, is mystical, and her worship was orgiastic and connected, at least in early times, with human sacrifice. According to Greek legend... There was in Taurus a goddess whom the Greeks identified with their own Artemis, to whom all strangers that were thrown off the coast of Taurus were sacrificed. And her example here is from Euripides' *Iphigenia in Taurus. It is the worship at Braron that exposes the significance of Artemis in Greek life. The rituals at Braron are said to be initiation rituals for young girls that were thought of as arctoi, or she bears. Um, And Ionesco continues to tell us about these rituals and the significance of bears. Bears were sacred to Artemis, but they were also heavily coded as a symbol of motherhood. This connection goes back to Neolithic times, with the image of the mother bear taking care of her cubs being seen as an ancient symbol of motherhood. Bears were perhaps the oldest sacred animal of all. They were hunted for food, and their remains were given ritual significance. At least in ancient Greece, bears were also heavily coded as feminine and mothers. When girls went through puberty and were particularly hormonal and quote-unquote wild, they were said to be in the grip or maybe the possession of Artemis herself. Artemis, the wild and untamed goddess, she was independent and free. Artemis, who never gave up her maiden's girdle, who never transitioned from being a girl who was free and able to run amongst the woods and the mountains to being a woman who is tied to home and hearth and family.
0: It's super interesting that this, this connection to bears that Artemis has and that Atalanta has goes all the way back to the Neolithic. That's really fascinating.
1: See, this is this is why we needed this episode. Like, I was like, I have to explain the importance of these bears.
0: Girls would give up their saffron robes at the age of 10 as an initiation rite into the cult of Artemis at Broronia. And this idea of giving up something childish on initiation to the cult of Artemis continued into Athens. In Athens, girls would give up their childish toys as a sacrifice to Artemis before they were married. They offered up these sacrifices to denote leaving behind the wildness of their childhood and taking on the civilization, quote-unquote, of adulthood, motherhood, and embracing the patriarchy. Ugh, God. Once they were married, their marriage would fall under the protection of Hera, but in order to gain that protection and presumably a happy marriage, girls had to give up their childish things and dedicate them to the goddess Artemis, the goddess of young girls. They also had to give up their freedom. However, I would suggest that giving up the saffron robes at Braronia is different from the offerings in Athens, because in Braronia, the robes were given up as part of the initiation process, as a transition from childhood to adulthood, but not as a sign of leaving behind childish things or the freedoms of childhood. It's more of a sign of thanks for a transition from one stage in life to another. So they're not necessarily marking a delineation from being a wild girl to being controlled by husband, hearth, and family. They're marking a transition from childhood to adulthood without the sense of a loss of freedom.
1: That's how I read it as compared to the classical Athenian version. I could be wrong, but it did feel like, you know, they accept that these, like, hormonal teenage girls are, like, she-bears in the grips of Artemis's wildness. And they kind of don't seem to be like saying you can't do that. They're kind of accepting that this is a natural thing for them and that this is part of their development into women. So I found that really fascinating. And I think that is probably slightly different from the Athenian worship. But Jenny, it wasn't just girls who worshipped Artemis as a goddess of the transition between adulthood and childhood. Ionescu tells us how Artemis was worshipped by boys and men in Sparta. Quote, The Baronian Artemis was also worshipped in Sparta as Artemis Orthia, goddess of the steep, or she who stands erect. The latter, sometimes understood as a phallic symbol, may correlate with the fact that only boys participated in this ritual. Her image is said to have been brought over or stolen from Braron and consequently drove men mad. Tradition states that some quarrel or competition among the earliest tribes of Sparta led to violence and death around the altar of Artemis. After the slaughter, there was a plague, and the oracle prescribed that the altar be soaked in blood. The citizens selected an individual by lot who would be the human sacrifice. The original tradition was eventually considered barbaric. And the ritual was adapted by the legendary lawgiver, Lycurgus, so that boys were scourged at the altar in such a manner that it became sprinkled with their blood. This cruel ceremony was believed to have been introduced in the place of human sacrifices. And according to Redfield, it was not boys who were scourged, but warriors. And instead of one of them dying, they could all bleed together.
0: So this bloody and fascinating description tells us a lot about Artemis and her worship. Artemis was a goddess of dualities and contradictions. She was an eternal maiden whose worship included masked orgies. Her roots were very ancient, going all the way back to the Neolithic, maybe, at least the bear association, and going back to ancient Egypt and and the ancient Minoans. But her worship would continue to evolve throughout the classical era, taking her legacy from a free, wild, carefree, independent woman into a sort of perpetual teenage girl who has an incredible amount of power but is also super hormonal and prone to fits of rage. Since this is the um arc about gender rebels, let's discuss how Artemis is a gender rebel here and how how her evolution can be seen as one of the building blocks of the patriarchy.
1: Absolutely. So Artemis originally was not sexually chaste or pure. She very clearly had orgies in the woods. But her followers were women, and she was, quote, not changed or touched by men, which is why she was wild, much like the wilderness is wild, because, as Jenny said, the wilderness is not touched or changed by men. It's not contained by the laws of of society. So I think we can all agree that Artemis was definitely in the woods having orgies with her female followers.
0: That is absolutely one really valid interpretation, and like I've said, we've seen the ancient Greeks sanding down implications of queer sex between women in their midst of other quote-unquote chaste goddesses like Athena, for example. The other implication is that Artemis' sexuality was not at all channeled to home and hearth and family, so no matter who was having orgies in the woods, she was unchanged by men, so they could fuck her, but they had to leave her wild. She wasn't going to be tamed by that sex and brought to home and hearth, even though she was a protective goddess of motherhood and children. It could go both ways, and it could be both at once, and it really does depend on which version of Artemis we're talking about here, because some versions of Artemis, we have the Minoan version, I think it was the Minoan version of Artemis, where they talk about her being untouched and unchanged by men, but then there are versions of Artemis that are worshipped by both men and women. So it's a little hard to tell, but I think yes to both at once is a good answer, probably the closest we'll get.
1: And I think the important thing to remember here is like, as much as you want one definitive version of this is how she was worshipped and this is how things worked, that's, that's not true. These gods and goddesses in different places throughout the, the ancient world would have been worshipped slightly differently. The meaning of them would be slightly different because they a lot of times came from local gods and goddesses being combined with other gods and goddesses in the wider pantheon. And therefore it adapted and changed. So I think both is true at the same time depending on where we're talking about and, and the time period. And I think, Jenny, that we definitely have an implication that queer sex was part of Artemis's worship.
0: this challenged the classical Greek definition of gender. The thing that threatens patriarchal men the most is the idea of a woman whose sexuality is not channeled towards them and their needs. Their whole project of the erasure of queer women, which we traced in our queer women episode, talks about how um, one of their big projects was absolutely controlling the sexuality of their women with an iron fist and channeling it only toward the only sexual outlet women were allowed to have was their husbands, home, hearth, and family. The only way they could stomach women being free of male control is if she's absolutely celibate. So that's how they reinvented Artemis. They sanded off her sexual agency.
1: Absolutely. And I think the other thing to be really clear about here is Artemis exists in the wild and the wilderness where the laws of men can't touch her.
0: Exactly. That's like she. Definitionally, she can't be controlled by men. Exactly.
1: That is something that scares, you know, particularly classical Athenians who made it their life's work to put women in one box. There were still women at that time who were living in the wild that were not touched by men and the laws of man. because when you go far enough away from the town and the city... Laws break down.
0: There's a lot more societal control when people are living closer together. So that, that does make sense. So like control would have been more more rigid in the cities, but these things do tend, probably tended to break down in the countryside.
1: And well, they had to because you have to survive. And when you're living in the countryside with your life dependent on what you can get out of a forest, like you're not as concerned with those gender roles. You're concerned with how do I survive the bears, the wild boars? If your sister's a better shot than you, you're taking her hunting.
0: So we talked about how the ancient classical Greeks sanded off Artemis' sexual agency to send a strong message to the women in their community that if you're going to be free like Artemis, you can't have sex. And that's even though Artemis still retained her association with motherhood and childbearing, which is a huge contradiction. And it's a huge contradiction because it's a vestigial remnant of an older concept of the goddess that makes more sense.
1: And you can see this in the Artemis of Ephesus, right? which is a representation of Artemis with tons of boobs. So many boobs.
0: Dozens of breasts that look like eggs. It's wild, you guys. I know it's in one of our um, eunuchs episodes where we went into that in more detail.
1: I'll put it in the show notes for this as well. This Artemis is explicitly a fertility goddess. She is very sexually mature. She's not a young girl with a bow and arrow. She is a sexually mature woman with lions on either side. So many boobs. She's fascinating. She's real different from how Artemis is usually portrayed.
0: Yeah, so the reinvention of Artemis by the classical Greeks is an example of how they constructed binary gender roles explicitly to bring their women to heel, to bring them under familial control. Their entire project was oppression of women via the construction of strict gender roles that eliminated women's sexual agency if it wasn't channeled to home, hearth, and family, and a development of a new pantheon that reinforced that messaging. You can be free, but you can't have sex if you're free.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing that's super fascinating about Artemis is how the classical Athenians started to bring the worship of Artemis in line with the worship of Apollo. So they were always a twin god and goddess, you know, they were always twins together. They weren't separate. Everything about their worship started becoming closer and closer aligned. So that all of the wildness of Artemis was tampered down, and Apollo kind of got to shine brighter, and Artemis she's kind of like a weird shadowy figure.
0: She was brought under Apollo's shadow, which further limited her power, I suppose you could say.
1: Yeah, so that's it for this week. We took a detour into the history of Artemis because next week, We're going to talk all about Atalanta. Those bears are going to make a comeback. Women with sexual agency are going to make a a real stride forward. And we're going to hopefully end this season at some point in time on a high note for our gender rebel Atalanta. As I said, I really felt as I was doing the research that in order to understand Atalanta... And to understand women who lived outside of civilization, although they would have not necessarily consider it that. But anyway, women who lived outside of like towns and cities and who lived in the areas that were abutting on the wild existed. And I think they were more common than we are led to believe. And in order to understand that, I think we needed to know about how Artemis was worshipped and how she changed. Because when you hear about Atalanta being a favorite of Artemis and Artemis looking out for her and sending this bear and hunters to help her, you're like, well, why would Artemis do that?
0: It's, it's almost like Atalanta is a derivative of Artemis. She's like a, an Artemis character who retains parts of the goddess that were sanded down by the classical Athenians already, which is really interesting. And we're going to get into that in more detail. And also like the way Artemis was the way that, you know, the ancient Artemis was worshipped in these rural areas also speaks to how women led their lives in these rural areas, which is what Atalanta represented. And we're going to talk about that too. So there's a big connection here. And we had to parse through that before we really talked about Atalanta and it wound up being its own episode. And hopefully, hopefully we actually will get to Atalanta next. So that's what we're doing.
1: That's the dream. So that's it for this week.
0: In the meantime, join us on social at Ancient Hist fan on Twitter and Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. So we have some Patreon members to thank, don't we, Jen?
1: We do. Oh, thank you so much to our patrons.
0: You can join our Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/AncientHistoryFangirl, where you can find extra episodes. We're now making videos and dropping those. We have some. We swear to God, we're going to drop them. Anyway, so um. Yeah, we have some Patreon members to thank. Shall we?
1: Thank you so much to Jessica,
0: just Jessica. We apologize in advance to anyone whose name we mispronounce. It probably will happen. Kinsey Bunch,
1: Shannon Carone, Mark LeBlanc, Jeanette, just Jeanette, James Hanks, Desiree Lamb,
0: Ibrahim Samara,
1: Harriet Holsby,
0: Molly O, Bill Blinder, Iana K, Cohen, Nina, just
1: Nina, Natalie V, Ren H. Kate. That's Kate Crane. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I think in that Nina is Nina Douglas. He's a dear friend of mine. Thank you, Nina.
0: Erica Ray.
1: Tavia Berrigan.
0: Anna Shapiro.
1: Aaliyah McNiff. Jody McDaniel. Jesse Kenner.
0: And Tawny Craig. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next week. Or maybe, you know, sooner than that, depending on how many episodes about Atlanta we have to shove in there at the end. We'll see. Who knows? Yay. See you whenever we see you next.